everyone. Before we get started, I want to make a quick announcement. Yap is recruiting our fall 2020 interns. Internships are awesome. In fact, I interned at a radio station, Hot 97, for free for almost three years. I'm so thankful for that experience. Without it, I would not be who I am or where I am today. Do you want exposure to podcasting, social media, or marketing? Do you want to get mentored by me? Then this could be the internship for you. But don't just take it from me. Hear it firsthand from my current interns, Caitlin Saw, Isabella Vo, and Catherine Ponzi, who can't recommend this program enough. Hi, my name is Caitlin. I am a YAP intern. I focused on building the Instagram and YouTube platforms. Um, If you want to be a YAP intern, you're going to love it here. Hala gives so much room for creativity and growth. So if you're interested in applying, uh, we're excited to meet you. Hi, my name is Isabella Vo, and I'm a social media intern for the Young and Profiting podcast. The experience has been so amazing and has really improved my copywriting skills and has given me hands-on experience working for a podcast. I'm so excited for you guys to join the team as fall interns. Hi, my name is Kate, and I'm a social media and guest outreach intern on the app team. I'd say my biggest learning so far is how to write great copy as well as communicate my ideas in a really succinct manner. Really excited to have fall interns join our team soon. Please note this is an unpaid and remote internship, but most interns graduate to become paid part-time team members. If you're interested to apply, we have the application links to all open positions in our show notes and on my LinkedIn page. Hope to see your application. You're listening to YAP, Young and Profiting Podcast, a place where you can listen, learn, and profit. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Hala Taha, and on Young and Profiting Podcast, we investigate a new topic each week and interview some of the brightest minds in the world. My goal is to turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your everyday life, no matter your age, profession, or industry. There's no fluff on this podcast, and that's on purpose. I'm here to uncover value from my guests by doing the proper research and asking the right questions. If you're new to the show, we've chatted with the likes of ex-FBI agents, real estate moguls, self-made billionaires, CEOs, and best-selling authors. Our subject matter ranges from enhancing productivity, how to gain influence, the art of entrepreneurship, and more. If you're smart and like to continually improve yourself, hit the subscribe button because you'll love it here at Young and Profiting Podcast. Today on the show, we're chatting with Yancey Strickler. Yancey is the co-founder of Kickstarter, father of the philosophy of bentoism, and author of This Could Be Our Future, a manifesto for a more generous world. Yancey has a lot of ideas on improving the world by realigning motives and how we value success so that it's not just purely profit-based. In this episode, we'll discuss Yancey's career background, including his work with Kickstarter, and we'll find out the meaning of financial maximization, how it came to run the world as we know it today, and how Bentoism can redefine our future. Hey, Yancey, welcome to Young and Profiting Podcast. What's up? Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm super, super stoked about this interview. So Yancey, just to introduce you to my listeners, you are the co-founder and former CEO of Kickstarter. You are the founder of the philosophy of bentoism, and you're the author of This Could Be Our Future, a manifesto for a more generous world. And before we dig into Kickstarter and bentoism, which is such an interesting topic, I really want to talk about your career journey and your childhood. So based on my research, you actually didn't really fit in growing up. Your family was even Christians. 
And even though your community was also uh, very Christian, you still didn't really fit in. You got bullied. You were called homophobic slurs in your own words, um, so much that you thought that you may be gay (laughs) um, and you just didn't even know it. So how did this experience of being an outcast as a child really impact who you are today and some of the moves that you've made in your life? Yeah, let's just let's let's just start right at the deepest, the deepest, most vulnerable spot. Why not? Yeah, it. Um, I think those kind of experiences shape your self perception. Whether they're true or not, they help create a narrative about yourself. So for me, that's create a narrative of like not belonging, you know. And even if I'm like being invited to belong. I distrust it, right? Because I just don't Mm. see that value. So there's just like, these things just echo, you know, they form your anxieties and and your drive. You know, for me growing up in the country, on a farm, no neighbors, you know, I just read books all the time. And that's what I love to do. And that's still what I love to do. And, And so one way of thinking about it is just during the, during the times where other people were yeah, socializing, uh, which of course I still have, but you know, I would just, I would be reading. And so I just had a real curiosity for the world that always drove me. And that even when I would have these really tough moments in life, like I just sort of was, was always called by just uh, an interest in the world, a curiosity in the world, you know, it did it really didn't beat me down in a way that it like, you know, stopped me from moving. It's more that I was just like, I got to get out of here. I've got to, I have to succeed. And so it played out that way. Well, that's, that's really cool. And I bring it up not to, not to like put you on the spot or make you feel uncomfortable. It's more because I have a lot of listeners that are young and probably are getting bullied. And I want them to understand that like you can come out of that and you can be super successful just like you, Yancey. Like you have, Kickstarter is one of the most impressive companies of the last decade, you know, and, and for you to have been a part of that and to have had a childhood where you weren't like the most popular, you know, football player in school, like you don't need to be that to, to be successful. And actually, most people who are the most popular in school are not the most successful after school, you know? And so I just think that's important for no, people to know. No, it's so important to recognize. You know, I, um, I lead people ba- using the philosophy that we're going to, we'll talk about later in Bentoism. Like I, I lead people in workshops. I help people discover what they're about. And there's an exercise I often do called draw your life where you like draw a line, snaking up a piece of paper. And at the bottom, you write your birth at the top, you write now, and then you just fill in what are the dots of your life between here and there. And after you do that, you have to identify like, what is the crucible moment? What is that moment that really shifted your direction in life? You know, maybe where you, instead of staying in the groove of what you were supposed to do, just like something in you changed. And when I first went through that exercise, I had thought like my key moment, the most critical thing was going to be starting Kickstarter, that that would be the Mm -hmm. proudest moment, the defining moment. And instead it was moving to New York after college. When I, when I really looked at it, I was like, actually, that was the riskiest thing I did. That was the thing that most changed my story of myself. And if that hadn't happened, like none of these other things would have happened. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm totally with you on the question and yeah, I, I feel it. 
Yeah. So let's talk about your career journey before Kickstarter. From my understanding, you had a dream of being a writer. So what were some of the things that you did before you actually started Kickstarter? Yeah, I was uh, in college. I studied English and cultural studies and uh, just did a lot of writing and reading. And I got while I was in college, I started just randomly writing record reviews and I, I managed to get a couple album reviews in Pitchfork and Pitchfork mm. was just starting then, but like, it was amazing, you know, I was one of the first, whatever, 30 people to write for Pitchfork and that, that was exciting. And then I, I moved to New York and, and got basically like entry level editorial mm. slash production jobs first at like a radio station, then at like a website. And at the start, all these jobs were basically some sort of data entry or like using a CMS, you know, take our stuff and put it in here so it goes on the website. But what I what I found was there's a lot of opportunity in those places, especially coming in as someone who was comfortable with the internet and technology. And this is when like mm-hmm. the world is still shifting, beginning to shift in that way. And I discovered something interesting for me, which is, you know, I'd always wanted to be a writer. I thought of myself as a writer, but like the the organizational questions, thinking strategically, getting people to like come to consensus around ideas, I, I discovered that I that those things came very naturally to me. And I didn't expect it. I didn't even want it. I actually felt like almost like a sellout or like a class trader for being good at those things because <laughs> I thought of myself as a creative person. But just being inside young organizations that were changing gave me enough opportunity and enough, you know, enough, enough challenges to, to chew on that it, it let me discover these other capabilities that I had. And yeah. in, in all cases, it came in from like taking the, I mean, my first job was $18,000 a year, taking that job and then just like every day or just showing up, just thinking, how can I be useful other than doing the 10 things that I have to do? And yeah, and that, and that was really it. That's really cool. And so, like I mentioned previously, you co-founded Kickstarter, which basically created a whole new economy based on the generosity of people. Kickstarter has placed billions of dollars in the hands of creative people since it launched in 2009. More than 100,000 new ideas have generated because of it. And it was actually uh, Perry Chen, who is one of your co-founders, who originally had the idea. So take us back to that moment back in 2009, when Perry first brought up the idea to you. What did you think about that idea? Did you understand it? And were you on board right away? Yeah. um, Perry had first had the idea in 2001, so, or 2001, 2002. So like he'd been sitting on it for a while and he'd wanted to throw a concert and realized that he was going to have to front something like $20,000 to make the show happen and thought, what if instead I could propose the concert to the public, people could put up their credit cards to buy tickets, but no one would be charged unless the show sold out. And so there was this notion of a conditional transaction. It would only happen if people wanted it to. And so that was the idea for Kickstarter. He shared it with me four years later. So 2005, we met in a restaurant where in Brooklyn where he worked and I was a regular and my first reaction to the idea was actually not liking it. I thought it reminded me of American Idol. And it, I'm just like, why do we need people voting on stuff? Like, is that, is that, is that how we want culture to happen? You know, really? And, and we just ended up talking about how, you know, think about the, the niche artist or the person who has the online community that's like so dispersed in the real world, but 
you know, if they could only gather the people on the web, you know, mm-hmm. something would be possible. And so, you know, we started working on it and, and found our, our third co-founder, Charles Adler, about a year later. And what was interesting was like, you know, crowdfunding didn't exist yet. And uh, there have been some experiments, but it wasn't, there wasn't any kind of platform. It wasn't a, a normal thing. And we were focused on the very beginning on just helping creative projects and artists and creative people. That was just like, that's who we were. That's where we came from. That's what we cared about. And so that meant from the beginning, you know, just like closing ourselves off to a lot of potential opportunity, just like taking a, a, a stronger focus than you might think. But, mm-hmm. you know, but in that way, just like, authentically representing a need, you know, of like creative ideas not being appreciated and, and especially creative people not being appreciated. And I, and I even think the way that creators are lauded now on the web and Patreon, even YouTube framing itself around creators, like that is not a language that existed before Kickstarter. Even before Kickstarter, it's like there are musicians and filmmakers and, you know, these are all discrete things. And instead, now we think of them as they're all kind of a, a similar creative practice. So it's, it was, um, it remains a great tool and and something that just allows self-determination and creative ideas and things that wouldn't otherwise to happen, uh, to happen. Yeah. So like you said, it wasn't a phrase that people knew about. People didn't know what crowdfunding was when you first launched Kickstarter. That, that phrase didn't exist. You guys kind of were one of the first pioneers in the space. So when you were bringing on investors or even content creators on the platform, what kind of pushback did you receive in terms of the idea? Yeah, it was so painful to explain. You know, you get get like lost in the mechanics of, and then there's a pledge and they don't get charged. There's so many things that we take for granted are really hard to explain at first. The first two years, every Kickstarter video is someone trying to explain to their friends, here is this new thing. Honestly, um, Business people would say no one is going to use this because like I want to get a cut. Like I should get a I should get a piece of the action. And but we would say, but listen, you know, this the whole idea is that projects aren't meant to be good businesses. They're just like interesting or cool or funny or, you know, it's all the other things. And so for a more traditionally minded business person, they're just like, this, what what need does this possibly serve? For creative people, they immediately would see it. Uh, they immediately saw it and said, yeah, you know, I have so many projects and I have to go knock on doors and beg to get them made. Like I would, if I, if I could just present my idea and I don't have to get permission from anyone, like that's amazing. But there was a question of, but will people actually support me? You know, because there's, it's still at that point, we're used to an artist fan relationship of, I buy a ticket when your movie comes out, I buy, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just that it's after the fact. And here we're saying, you know, just support this person for being them. Support an idea because it's a good idea. And that's that's requiring a different level of trust. And so, yeah, I think everyone had the attitude of like, well, sure, this sounds great, but having that, you know, healthy, grizzled veteran, you know, skepticism of, but we'll see, you know, we'll see if people actually do this kind of thing. But if you look at, you know, Kickstarter, GoFundMe, Patreon, you know, it's, even now only fans, right? I mean, it, like the, yeah. the, the degree to which we are willing and excited to directly support one another is just, you know, it seems so obvious now, but it really was not, that connection was not there before about yeah. 10 years ago. Was there some sort of like a tipping point when you guys started 
where you guys were trying to get people to join your platform to use it? Like, what was the moment in which you were like, oh, wow, this is really going to work? I was three weeks in. It was a project by a woman from Athens, Georgia named Allison Weiss. It was like to make a new EP. And Mm -hmm. she was a YouTuber. And she just made like the best video that was just personal and alive. And you just felt like you were with her. And she offered these rewards, like writing a song about you. And, and it just, it felt like she took this form that we'd made and she, she just, she just turned it into something that was truly alive. And, you know, just seeing that was like, oh, so this is really something. And it's not like things took off at that point, but I think it was just seeing a really skilled storyteller look at this and think, oh, this is like, I can play with this. Right. And Mm -hmm. you, you hope, you dream that someone thinks of your tool that way. And Allison just nailed it. And, and honestly, I think like almost every crowdfunding video and even the structure of crowdfunding campaigns is still based on her. Like she did stretch goals in the first campaign, like things that people still think of as like nascent new things in crowdfunding. Like she was doing it in the third week that this existed. Um, so, so, you know, but it was, so it's that, it's that collision between your idea and in the real world. And then finding that, oh, it really does mean something. Young and profiters, they may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales on LinkedIn because when it comes to B2B sales, LinkedIn has got that on lock. LinkedIn is where all the decision makers are hanging out. There are 180 million senior level decision makers on LinkedIn and 10 million C-suite decision makers. These people are on LinkedIn and they're in the mode to buy. They're using LinkedIn for their buying journey to research vendors or sales reps that they might work with, to look up how to solve their problems, to learn from industry thought leaders. They're in the mode to buy, whereas on other platforms, they're in the mode to be entertained. You want to get them in the right mindset. You want to cut through the noise with LinkedIn ads. In fact, 79% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as their top channel for paid media. And LinkedIn has the best targeting because they've got all these different inputs. People are putting their resume basically up on there. And so there's so many keywords that they can use to target the right decision makers so they can hear about how you solve their problems. And I've got a special gift for all you young and profiters who want to try LinkedIn ads. You can get $100 credit. LinkedIn was super generous. If you want to make B2B marketing everything it can be and get $100 credit on your next campaign, go to linkedin.com slash yap, Y-A-P. Again, if you want to claim your credit, go to linkedin.com slash yap. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, Yap fam. Starting my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass was one of the best things I've ever done for my business. I didn't have to waste time figuring out all the nuts and bolts of setting up a website that had everything I needed, like a way to buy my course, subscription offerings, chat functionality, and so on, because it was super easy with Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, whether you're selling your first product, finally taking your side hustle full time, or making half a million dollars from your masterclass like me. And it doesn't matter if you're selling digital products or vegan cosmetics. Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Shopify's got you covered as you scale. 
Stop those online window shoppers in their tracks and turn them into loyal customers with the internet's best converting checkout. I'm talking 36% better on average compared to other options out there. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. from huge shoe brands like Allbirds to vegan cosmetic brands like Thrive Cosmetics. Actually, back on episode 253, I interviewed the CEO and founder of Thrive Cosmetics, Carissa Bodnar, and she told me about how she set up her store with Shopify and it was so plug and play, her store exploded right away. Even for a makeup artist type girl with no coding skills, it was easy for her to open up a shop and start her dream job as an entrepreneur. That was nearly a decade ago. And now it's even easier to sell more with less thanks to AI tools like Shopify Magic. And you never have to worry about figuring it out on your own. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. So you can focus on the important stuff, the stuff you like to do. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting. And that's all lowercase. If you want to start that side hustle you've always dreamed of, if you want to start that business you can't stop thinking about, if you have a great idea, what are you waiting for? Start your store on Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Again, that's shopify.com slash profiting. Shopify.com slash profiting for $1 per month trial period. Again, that's shopify.com slash profiting. Young and profiters, Yap Media is growing so fast. I have 10 open roles just this month. In the past, it would take me so long to find hires. I have to go on all these different job sites. I have to create my own skills assessments. That's why I let Indeed do a lot of this heavy lifting for me. Indeed is the powerful hiring platform where I can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Indeed has things like skills assessments, where when we have specific roles, we can find an assessment that matches that role and we can make sure they have the skills that we need. Then I can focus on culture fit. I can make sure they're scrappy enough and are obsessed with excellence and do all the things that we need to do for them to fit in at YAP. And Indeed streamlines hiring with powerful tools like Instant Match. An Instant Match basically matches you with candidates as soon as you put up a job post with people who are qualified right away. It's instant. And the best part is it gets better as you use it. So now when I use Indeed, especially when I'm hiring for similar roles, I get people right away where they know that I'm gonna like the candidates because they can see what my preferences were in the past. It gets better as you use it. According to US Indeed data, the moment Indeed sponsors a job, over 80% of employers get candidates whose resumes are a perfect match for the position. It's like waving a magic wand that gets better as you use it. So I love using Indeed. We've found a lot of our A players on there. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide who count on Indeed to hire their next superstar like we do at Yap Media. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash profiting. Offer is good for a limited time. Claim your $75 sponsored job credit at indeed.com slash profiting. Again, that's indeed.com slash profiting. And support the show by saying you heard about it on Young and Profiting Podcast. Again, it's indeed.com slash profiting to get your $75 credit. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So when you first started Kickstarter or before you even had the idea for it, you were a writer. You weren't really expecting to be an entrepreneur. You didn't go get your MBA. 
you know, you were an artist and, and this idea kind of came about and, and you went with it and you had a really good mission. You wanted artists and creators to have a way to fund their brilliant ideas, right? So did you have like imposter syndrome uh, considering that you took the CEO role at the company? What were some of the challenges that you had in terms of being a leader and not really having too much business experience? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm still waiting to see if imposter syndrome ends, you know, just see <laughs> somehow even as you change, you think, oh, but, I, but am I really this? Um, yeah, there was a lot, there's a lot of that because um, it wasn't an aspiration. I mean, Perry was the CEO for the first five years and, uh, and I stepped in after that. And mm-hmm. it's not something that I wanted or had, you know, spent my life preparing for. And and that, that's a good and a bad thing. You know, it's a good thing because, especially if you're a company like Kickstarter, where you're trying to, you know, we're trying to set a different kind of example. We're, you know, we're really trying to uphold a lot of values that that are personal to us. Mm-hmm. You don't want to do things the way everybody else does them because that laziness can just trap you. You know, we saw it happen to, to many of our friends. But also, you know, it just means that as everyone else is chasing hyper growth and large valuations, and you're not chasing those things that, you know, other folks get their like trophy moment and, you know, you don't, yours is more subtle. And there are days where you, that you can feel good about it and you could think, you know, it doesn't matter. And then there are days where you think, what if everyone else is right? And I'm like the one sucker who didn't, you know, who didn't like realize so I, you know, for me, it was hard that I just didn't see many role models. Like I, you know, I had people on my board I loved and, but certainly as I looked around the startup universe, I didn't see anyone reflecting this idea of like trying to build a long-term institution, trying to align our self-interest with our users and employees, like, you know, just the things that to me felt like the hardest things to get right, honestly, it just seemed like no one else even cared about. So that's hard. That's hard. And it's, and and it's even something that like, even inside the company, there is, um, you know, because we all live in the same world. And so employees say might want, Hey, can we raise a lot of money to go chase growth to match what a competitor is doing? And so it's not just that, like, there are these Scrooge McDuck, like sitting somewhere. It's, Mm -hmm. we're all, we're all a part of this. I'm a part of it too, right? And so there's a lot that you end up having to balance there. You know, in, in the end, in the end, what I found is that I was ultimately able to just act in a way that is deeply true to who I am. You know, I, I don't yeah. really look at anything I did and see any moment where I think that I was out of alignment with what I believe is important, what I care about. You know, did I always make the right decision? No. Did I, you know, did things always work out? No. But on that deeper level, I think it was always on point to some degree. And, um, mm-hmm. and again, I, I have friends who were founder CEOs, more, more successful, funny, funny phrase to use, the, use in this context, but more successful, became very wealthy, all, you know, followed the same, the traditional path. And I think there you find there's still a lot of regret. There's guilt, you know, do I deserve this? There's, you know, did I do things the right way or not? You know, maybe I took some shortcuts that are possibly creating some challenges now. How do I feel about that? So there's a lot you end up carrying, but yeah. So having, just having the, the confidence to be yourself in a job like that, you know, I, I definitely don't feel like I mastered that, but I, I, I think I held the line well enough. 
Yeah, for sure. I definitely think that you did. Just to give my listeners some context, Kickstarter is a public benefit corporation, correct? And that's a PBC is what people call it. And I personally never heard of this company structure before researching you. It turns out there are a few other large corporations like Patagonia and Method Products that are also PBCs. But explain to our listeners what that is and how that makes you different from other companies and startups or how how that makes Kickstarter different, because I think it will help them understand what you were just talking about a little bit more. Yeah, a a PBC is a for-profit company that Mm -hmm. has taken upon itself and, and has a legal classification where it is required to balance the financial interests of shareholders, which is what every company in America is held by over the last 50 years. But you're meant to balance the the financial interests of shareholders with producing a positive benefit to society. And so most companies have the attitude that you make as much, you just maximize for profit. You create a corporate giving program to apologize later for all the rivers you polluted. Um, and, <laughs> you know, we hope that works out in the long run. I think we can look around us to see how well that strategy plays out. As a PBC, you're saying that these things must be one-to-one. Like you're, you're directly incorporating these things into how you act, how you behave in, in all aspects. And when you become a PBC, you write a charter that says what you're going to be legally held liable to. And so Kickstarters lays out a dozen or so provisions that include things like donating 5% of our after-tax profits to organizations giving arts education in schools and organizations mm-hmm. fighting systemic inequality, or pledging to not use legal but esoteric tax avoidance strategies to avoid paying the company's fair share. But what's important about a, a PBC structure is that you know, there, there, there are a lot of good companies, um, but those that are operating as a traditional for-profit company, they're just relying on having good people in their leadership positions. You know, they, mm-hmm. they, they ultimately are still being held to this goal of maximizing a financial gain. And they just happen to have nice people doing it that aren't willing to do all the, the things that you can do. As a PBC, the company is legally held, held to this and it can't change. Like, the company, you know, I'm no longer the CEO of Kickstarter. The, the CEO now is Ease Hassan. He has to follow these same ideals. So the same will be for the next Kickstarter CEO and on and on. So we ultimately felt like this was a, a structural way to keep us honest, uh, a structural way to keep the company aligned with its community of creative people. And, you know, we as founders said from the beginning, you know, we, we didn't want to sell the company. We weren't trying to IPO. Just like, can we create? a thing that does what it's supposed to do, that doesn't screw it up, that fulfills that purpose. And so I think the PPC is a, is a structural way to do that. It's not it's not perfect. It doesn't solve it. But I, I think it is a, a model and, and definitely more people are using it. Yeah. So you just brought up financial maximization. So I think that's a great transition into our next topic, which is what you really focus on now, like speaking about and, and bentoism. So this idea of financial maximization, it it boils down to meaning that the right choice is whatever option makes the most money. And this concept was first introduced by the famous economist Milton Friedman in 1970. And so we're so used to this, this way of the world where money drives everything, profit drives everything. Even like GDP is how our country is measured on our success as a country. So tell us about 
you know, this economist who put out this op-ed in New York Times and how that really changed the world. What was the world like before that? And what happened after that? Yeah, I mean, Milton Friedman is a brilliant economist with, you know, many, many great additions to our knowledge of the world. Uh, And it was 50 years ago, actually, to this week that he wrote this New York Times uh, essay that said that the social responsibility of a business is to increase profits. And that at a moment when companies were really held to this notion of the public good and companies were celebrated for being things like GM saying what's good for America is good for GM, that it was an argument that that all that was wrong and that actually they were overcomplicating things and businesses should just focus on maximizing profits. Now, I think there's some wisdom to, to what he says, but that became a license to basically just absolve, for business to absolve themselves of any responsibility other than their own returns. And so you see this dramatic shift in how America functioned that happened in 1973, where basically worker wages just stopped growing. From 1973 to today, the average American's wage has grown by about 10%. That's 10% since 1973, the same year Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon came out. It's like 50 years, 10% raise. Meanwhile, the cost of everything are crazy higher. Education, housing, healthcare, everything else. So people are like getting pinched in this crazy way. There's a study that just came out today from the Rand Corporation, which is, I write about in the book, a very reputable government organization that did a study to say, you know, what if wages kept growing after 1973 that the way they had for the previous 30 years, which you think of as the golden age of capitalism, the average American salary today would be jumping from something like $70,000 to like $110,000. And what they found is that every single income group, like the lowest paid person, would be getting $68,000 a year. And the only group, the only group that loses out on income is the 1%. Even the 99th percentile person sees their incomes gain. But yet the way the system worked changed, it fundamentally changed. And it changed to optimizing for shareholders. And that produced private equity, that produced uh, companies offshoring jobs, that produced the fragility of the American industrial sector today. Mm -hmm. That produced all these things. They're all justified by this notion of, well, if it maximizes our, our financial interests, then it's good. But we have reached the end of that story. We've reached the end of that story. It has not worked. It has not worked. America is falling apart. Our environment is incredibly unstable. We're going to find it very hard to just be, we already are, thinking about the normal, let's all grow our businesses, whatever, 10%, when there is so much instability and where the weather can wipe out billions of dollars of capital investment in a day, you know, overnight. And so we're in a moment where that mindset is shifting, but it, it really ha- took such a strong hold in the world. Maybe, maybe my favorite place is in a, a study of college students that's happened every year since the 1960s, that is about their goals in life. And in 1970, the most important life goal for a college freshman was to, quote, develop a meaningful philosophy on life. 84% of college students said that was essential. That year, uh, the number of people who said being rich was essential was about 28%, 28% of college students in 1970. The most recent year the study came out in 2017, 82% of college students said being rich was essential. And only 40% said having a meaningful philosophy on life was. And and this is a rational response to how our world has changed. 
And so, you know, th- this is something that I think is at the moment of a, of a breakdown, uh, kind of an empire is breaking down at this moment. But I, I really have come to feel that this invisible assumption that the right outcome is the financially maximizing one is, has just been this sort of invisible litmus test that has been applied to the world continually over the, the recent decades. Yeah, totally. And can you tell us more about this? Uh, you have a chapter in your book called The Maximizing Class. I know you touched on it a little bit, but tell us more about who these people are, what they did, how they changed the way that the world works, and even how they ended up increasing credit card debt on society. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of what we're talking about is a consulting class, and, and, and in particular, like a McKinsey, BCG, Bain, consultants coming in with a private equity background, they're being brought in by management to say, find us where we can maximize profits. Where can we cut costs? Where can we maximize profits? I have a a quote in the book from someone saying that McKinsey is responsible for more job losses than anyone else in human history. And, And so this was just a new strategy and so people were trained in this strategy in business schools and in law schools. Uh, and this has become just an assumed way of doing business. You know, you, you squeeze workers, you try to remove their rights, you try to dismantle the unions, you take more and more profits to the top. Your board is never going to get mad at you. Your shareholders are never going to get mad at you for doing that. And meanwhile, we're heading towards a world where honestly, the future of business doesn't really involve people. The future of business is is robots and algorithms and like the twenty percent of the population that will still be able to afford their products. You know that that the future of business is sees sees people as increasingly irrelevant, and so yeah, it is a it is a mindset that in a healthy society is checked by the other parts of civil society. It's checked by government. It's checked by a strong social fabric. It's checked by the family, and you have a business community that is serve, you know, working hard, doing all those things, but it's just balanced in the context of everything else. This is how things work out well. This is how, you know, a rainforest stays balanced, right? But but what we've had, especially in the U.S., is just the, the business community and the financial mindset becomes so powerful to even now, we can only conceive of answers that are like theirs. We want, and I, and I fall into this too, we, we, we want businesses, we want Patagonia to solve climate change. No, Patagonia will never solve climate change. You know, states will solve climate change. Science will solve climate change. But yet we've put so much of our faith in business and entrepreneurship, which I believe in, which I believe in, but they are just a part of the, of the piece of the puzzle. And, and every time we continue to rely on the, the business community as solving that, creating that answer Ultimately, we are tilting more and more of, of our society to a, a ultimately a financial outcome. So it's we're, we're stuck in a dangerous loop. But I, but I think it's breaking. I mean, I think that the the disaster of where we are is breaking us. Yeah. So let's talk about values a bit because I think values are really important in this whole conversation. Right now, the world and America and with capitalism, we value money and, and maximizing money. What are some of the other values that we could have in play that could mean success? Like what other measures of success are there? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, mastery is a great one. You know, mastery is the act of just getting better at something. You know, if you if you follow like the James Clear Atomic Habits world, you know, that that is like the true art of growth is actually you yourself getting better. You're not demanding anything more of, the, of anyone else. You're just personally improving. There are values like fairness. Uh, there are values like community ship. There are, are values like purpose. 
that we see are incredibly important. But, you know, we, we see it like we assume that all those things must take a back seat to providing for your own financial needs, right? I mean, to, mm-hmm. to pursue a job or a career with purpose and to some degree is seen as indulgent. It's privileged. And, and in a sense it is because for half the population that, that really is a, a, a hard ask to make just because the, the degree to which opportunity ha, is being not being evenly distributed. But so I think that I think that those values are very alive. I mean, in that in that survey of college freshmen, I mean, the, the same percentage of college freshmen want to have a family every year. Like that has not really changed. We still value these same things. But the issue is that they're getting more and more squeezed by our need to make financial ends meet, by our need to have health care. And then we tie our notion of self-worth and self-esteem to getting those things. And then you get into that dangerous loop where you are making enough, you're making more than enough, but you build a lifestyle Mm -hmm. to match it. Nothing feels like enough. And then you become the heavy polluting Uber consumer that is making themselves unhappy and is destroying the earth at the same time. And you look at anyone that has like a VP, SVP level job at like a big company, there's a high chance that their life is something like that, right? And, yeah. and this is like these notions of success, they, they box us into these, just these corners where we're really causing a lot of damage, even though we don't recognize it. Young and profiters, we are all making money, but is your money hustling for you? Meaning, are you investing? Putting your savings in the bank is just doing you a total disservice. You got to beat inflation. I've been investing heavily for years. I've got an E-Trade account. I've got a Robinhood account. And it used to be such a pain to manage all of my accounts. I'd hop from platform to platform. I'd always forget my Fidelity password. And then I have to reset my password. I knew that needed to change because I need to keep track of all my stuff. Everything got better once I started using Yahoo Finance the sponsor of today's episode. You can securely link up all of your investment accounts in Yahoo Finance for one unified view of your wealth. They've got stock analyst ratings. They have independent research. I can customize charts and choose what metrics I want to display for all my stocks so I can make the best decisions. I can even dig into financial statements and balance sheets of the companies that I'm curious about. Whether you're a seasoned investor or looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Yeah. And what are role models? How do role models impact the way that society views our values and what values that we find, you know, most impressive? Yeah. I mean, they really, they embody, you know, we, we embody them. I and mean, there's such a funny degree to which in the U.S., who's president really does seem to set a kind of a tone for the country. You know, I've lived through five or six presidents at this point, And it's really true. I, I was seeing something the other day that said it was like the most desirable brand attributes. And in like some 2015, 2014 smart and social were like the two most desired brand attributes. The most desired brand attribute today was talks like a regular person. And I thought, oh, Obama, smart and, you know, smart and social. Trump talks like a regular person. Like we are, like there are these, these sort of models we're being, we're sort of seeing and we embody. You know, for me as a, when I was in the CEO seat, I read, you know, all the fast companies, the inks, all those sorts of things. And you're just, you know, you're, you're looking for tips. How could I be better? 
And of course, I'm I'm just drawing so many hidden assumptions in doing that, right? Just just yeah. ways of working that, you know, I either judge myself for not having or think, do I need to to develop this more? And um, so they have they have a huge impact. I mean, now we're in a funny world where we have you know micro role models, right? I mean, I like the other week I got a retweet from someone that I'm sure no one on this listening to this podcast has heard of, but it had me like in my office, jumping up and down, you know, excited because I felt seen by this person that to me is a hero, but you know, they, they might even be surprised to hear that. And so I think today it's, you know, it's, it's a bit different where, where we look to for that inspiration. Yeah. So let's get into uh, bentoism. And from my understanding, it's a tool or a values processor that can help people decide which four different choices they should pick in every different scenario. The choices include now me, now us, future me, and future us. Can you talk to us about this decision-making methodology that you've came up with? Maybe give us a real example of of how you can use it. Sure, yeah. Um, Yeah, so one day while I was working on the book, I was sketching in my notebook and I drew what's called a hockey stick graph, you know, a, just a simple X, Y axis chart, and then a line sloping up and to the right. And I drew this as a graph of self-interest, what I thought we thought of as self-interest today. And after I drew that graph, I, I realized that the X axis, which represents time, it could extend. It can go from all the way from now to the future. And the Y axis, which measured which I thought reflected your self-interest, how, how popular you were, how, you know, how, how powerful you were becoming, that that also had a dimensionality because as our self-interest grows, so do our responsibilities. So I thought that actually goes from me to us. So I ended up extending these lines and instead of this simple hockey stick graph, I had these four quadrants and I, I labeled each one, now me in the bottom left, what I want and need right now future me and the bottom right, what the older, wiser version of me wants me to do. Like that person becomes real or not every day based on my choices. There's in the top left, now us, my friends, my family, the people I care most about, they're impacted by everything I do. And then in the top right, future us, my kids, or if I have them or or everybody else's kids, if I don't. And I realized that even though when I'm making decisions, I'm really only thinking about now me for the most part. Actually, every choice I make leaves a footprint in all these spaces. I'm constantly shaping them. So I wrote down next to this a simple description of what I draw on, and I wrote beyond near-term orientation. This was like a simple graph that helped me see beyond my near-term orientation. And I just suddenly realized that was an acronym for BENTO. And I thought about the Japanese bento box that has four or five compartments in a lid that lets you carry a variety of dishes. So not too much of any one thing. It's all about balance. And the bento also honors a Japanese dieting philosophy called Hadahachibu, which says the goal of a meal is to be 80% full. That way you're still hungry for tomorrow. So I thought bento, the bentoism, bentoism is the same thing, but for my values and my choices a way for me to not just listen to what now me wants, but to see this, this bigger picture. So just a simple example is you can imagine a smoker asking their bento, because it's, it's actually a tool, a UI, a, bento, a smoker asking their bento whether they should quit smoking. So what you would do is you'd ask each of these boxes individually and just see what it has to say. So a smoker asks their now us, which thinks of their family, should I quit smoking? 
And that bento says, yeah, you should quit. Like, we hate that you smoke. The smoker asks their future us, which thinks of their children, should I quit smoking? And says, yeah, what if I smoke because of you? Quit. The smoker asks their future me, should I quit smoking? Future me says, I want there to be a future me. Let's quit. And then the smoker asks their now me. And the now me says, hell no. I'm addicted to nicotine. Quitting's going to suck. No, we definitely shouldn't quit. And this is where we often get stuck, right? We listen to this now me voice. We have a harder time seeing these other spaces. They're irrational. They're deferred. The outcomes are deferred. They're harder to, to make those kinds of decisions. But this is where we individually get stuck. And this is where we, as a world have gotten stuck is just optimizing for now me and not doing a good enough job of thinking about the people in our lives and thinking about the long-term impact of our decisions. And so the bento's as simple as you could get, four boxes, and you can build your own values inside of them. And I lead a community called the Bento Society, several hundred people, and we come together every week to build our bentos, to go through creative exercises, to better understand what we want, to better think about the future, what we're working towards, to feel connected with others. And, and the goal of all this work is to redefine what the world sees as valuable and in our self-interest in 30 years. By 2050, this can happen. By 2050, the same way that we view short-term individualism, that every decision is about now me, that we just take that as a given. In 30 years, this notion, this bentoist view that now in the future, me as an individual and me as a, and us as a group, those are all things that I must balance, that that way of thinking can become just as assumed, just as deeply ingrained in society, and that that's what begins to unlock what are the next evolutions. That is what allows us to deal with climate change. That is what allows us to better create social value with one another, to increase the trust with each other. It's this kind of thinking that I think unlocks all of our best outcomes. Yeah. So 30 years from now is really actually not a lot of time at all. So why do you think that we have a chance to do this within 30 years? Like, oh. There's a lot of, in my research for the book, I found a lot of history, meaningful ideas going from really nothing to just so deeply ingrained in 30 years. And, and I think that there are those, those generational shifts that happen. Some 30-year changes are things like exercise. Believe it or not, before the 1950s, like exercise wasn't a thing that people did. Like exercise had to be invented. Uh, Hip-hop goes <laughs> from like not existing to dominating the charts in 30 years. Gay marriage goes from like unthinkable to normal within 30 years. There are these incremental changes, this, this exponential growth that happens in that kind of timeline. And I think that what, why this happens with us is that really for anyone under the age of 40, you are growing up already with a networked notion of the world. Like the internet is built into our mind. The way that we're connected to each other is, is, is like deeply part of us. Yes, we feel lonely. Yes, but like but we're so much more connected than other generations too. And, and ultimately the challenges that we face are forcing us to think about the future, right? COVID is forcing us to think about the future, yeah. but that we can do those things blindly. We can do those things feeling lost. We can do those things feeling defensive, or we could do those things in a way that we have a structured way of thinking where we have a shared map that we're using. And maybe we can start to create almost like genres of value. Like what does it mean to create future us value? What, what kinds of actions do that? What kinds of actions harm that? And so as I look at the 30-year process of this change, 
I think it starts with individuals just seeing their own lives differently. And this has now happened for thousands of people at this point. And the Bento Society is like a weekly practice of that. The second step is people sharing this perspective in their workplaces and in their homes, like the other places where we're leaders, just like, hey, have we thought about kind of the future us consequences of this? And just beginning to share this perspective. It's not hard to get a hold of. And it it instantly clicks for people, I find. And finally, the third and and kind of the the slowest moving flywheel, but the biggest is, is how our norms get redefined by these kinds of changes. And this is where I think you're getting to that 30 year perspective of can we define new sorts of values and metrics that businesses use to guide behavior? Can we say normalize uh, long-term and short-term thinking through like our digital products somehow? Like how, what are ways that these things can be just practically a part of our life? And that takes longer time. And so the Bento Society, we're thinking about all three levels of that. And those longer-term projects the goal is to be funding things, to be just supporting, you know, whether it's businesses, one-off projects, art that are fulfilling this notion of growing non-financial values and, and balancing our self-interest. And I think just stepping up to where we are in the world, like just stepping up as humans, like do, doing our ancestors a solid and not blowing this. You know, this is like where we are. This is like the biggest choke job, the biggest choke job. The fact that we are struggling so much from where we are. I mean, we're, we're just giving this away. And, and so I, I think that we have to get real. And, and to me, it's at this level of structural change that isn't huge, but it's just how we see ourselves and our responsibility. And that is more powerful than any technology or anything else. And I, and I have a lot of faith in that. Yeah. When I was reading your book, I was like mind blown. I I really helped open up my perspective to all of this, especially when you were, you were writing about how, you know, the population is, is exploding right now and think about how much garbage we have and carbon pollution and all of that. And, and just thinking about how many more people are going to be around and even with COVID and who knows what that's going to be like with an increased population and it's just scary. And and we do need to kind of change what we value and how we work as a society for sure. Yeah. We're, I think we're, we're going over a precipice right now. And I think that a certain regime is ending. And I think the, the falls of regimes are messy and scary and painful and are often violent and deadly. And there is much to be fearful of, but you know, my feeling is that 15 years from now, 10 years from now, I I think we're going to find ourselves in just a dramatically better position, asterisk climate change, asterisk climate change in a major way. Like who knows what that is, but, but I have, I'm an optimist about human beings. I I think we always do the best we can with what we know. And part of my drive and thinking about Bentoism and this model was just you know, what new knowledge could we possess that would really allow us to, to step into our responsibility to see it? Because no one wants to leave a worse world. Like no, no one intentionally desires these things, but we've become so careless and we've become so trapped in our narratives. But the, the world is going to take them away from us, whether people are ready or not. Yeah. So my last question uh, before we close out is really on Tesla. So I think they're a great example of how you can prioritize future us instead of me now. Could you give us that example? Yeah. Well, just Tesla. I mean, not only that it's an electric car company, but you know, even Tesla's patents that they developed several years ago, I think in 2014, Tesla and Elon Musk decided to make all their patents available to anyone. 
and said, our goal is not to be the biggest electric car company in the world. It's our goal is for electric cars to be what everyone drives in the world. And we think that this is what makes this happen. You know, that that's a, the perfect kind of decision that we need, you know, because we are, we, we tell ourselves a story that we are competing, but we, there is one planet here and, and, and all of our competitions are so puny and so small compared to what's really at stake. And so I think gestures like that show the truth of our situation. And, and I think there are more of those coming. Very cool. And the last question I ask all my guests is, uh, what is your secret to profiting in life? Uh, I think it's really knowing yourself and acting in a way that's in integrity and coherent with who you most deeply are. When you're doing that, it's hard to go wrong. And where can our listeners go to learn more about you and everything that you do? Yeah, my, you can find me online at whystrickler.com. You can find out more about Bentoism at bentoism.org. And if you want to join the weekly practice we do, that's just bit.ly slash weekly bento. We'd love to have awesome. you there. Cool. Thank you so much, Yancy. I loved this conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks. You too. Thanks for listening to Young and Profiting Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or comment on YouTube, SoundCloud, or your favorite platform. Reviews make all the hard work worth it. They're the ultimate thank you to me and the Yap team. The other way to support us is by word of mouth. Share this podcast with a friend or family member who may find it valuable. Follow Yap on Instagram at Young and Profiting and check us out at youngandprofiting.com. You can find me on Instagram at Yap with Hala or LinkedIn. Just search for my name, Hala Taha. Until next time, this is Hala signing off.